Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. It's March 30th, 2009, and my guest today is Dan Klein of George Mason University. Our topic for today is Adam Smith's lesser-known masterpiece, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. In today's podcast, we'll talk about some of the key ideas of the book, and for those who are interested, we'll do a series of bonus podcasts to be released on Wednesdays, reading through the book part by part and talking about the ideas in more depth. We're calling it the Econ Talk Book Club, if you'd like to read along or comment, Head to www.econtalk.org slash book club, one word, dot html, and you'll find links to an online version of the book you can read without charge or how you can order the book from Liberty Fund at a discount if you'd like a hard copy. That play- page will also give you the tentative schedule of what we'll be reading when if you'd like to follow along. We expect the first bonus podcast to cover part one of the book and to air on Wednesday, April 15th. So if you'd like to read part one in advance, you can get started. Wednesday, April 15th will be the day we'll be talking about that part. This week's podcast, a regular Monday release, will be a standalone introduction to the book of sorts, an overview about some of the key ideas. Dan, welcome back to Econ Talk, and thank you for being our guide to the theory of moral sentiments. Thanks very much. Now, first, a little background. The book was written in 1759, first published in 1759. It was revised, uh, and I think the final edition uh, came out in 1790. It, its beginning and its end then span the publication of the theory uh, – excuse me, of The Wealth of Nations, which was published in 1776. Now, almost everybody knows, or at least lots of more people know, about The Wealth of Nations – and I think a lot of people think that was Adam Smith's last word on economics uh, and his first word. It's uh, a masterpiece. It would be another interesting book club subject if we had a great deal of time. But as an, an economist who has never read all of the theory of moral sentiments uh, and is excited about the opportunity to do so uh, with you, my impression of the theory of moral sentiments is it's sort of a – it's a richer version of The Wealth of Nations. The Wealth of Nations, the parody caricature version is it's about the virtues of selfishness, the invisible hand, the idea that that uh, people acting in their own self-interest create wonderful things and that, again, in the caricature version that Adam Smith's a big advocate of, of greed and, 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 uh, and uh, acquisitiveness as the main motivation of human behavior. The theory of moral sentiments – However, once you start to look at it, is about a much richer set of motivations. It's about how we're also motivated by fame and glory and guilt and the feelings of our fellows for our reputation and our self-esteem. Uh, is that a good characterization of what distinguishes uh, the theory of moral sentiments? And is that why Smith wrote it to f- give a fuller picture of human behavior? The moral dimensions of our con- of our conduct. And prompting us to explore those and understand those. Um, Sometimes people feel that there's some kind of tension between the two books. I don't particularly feel that way. 
uh, and what you remarked on, the fact that moral sentiment spans the time of the writing and publication of the uh, Wealth of Nations helps to make that point. Um, what else was Smith trying to achieve in the book? Um, I think Smith is exploring our, our moral um, considerations, our moral understandings, um, and, but I also think he's engaged in a project of um, advancing them, of refining them, of, of moving them towards wisdom. Um, I think that's a very important thing to understand in the moral sentiments. It's not just sort of a social psychology or a moral psychology. Um, it's, it, it is kind of agenda-driven. Um, he's part of an enlightenment movement. He sees rapid uh, developments in the society around him, developments of all different kinds. Um, I see Smith as um, doing the moral sentiments and then um, seeing that he needs to explore what he called natural jurisprudence, which includes political economy. Natural jurisprudence is what the laws ought to be. Natural juris jurisprudence is proper law or desirable law as opposed to the positive law of each nation, as he put it. And the exploration of, of what the laws should be, um, I think, are sort of nested within his larger project of exploring the moral sentiments um, and wisdom and virtue. Uh, it's certain applications, uh, uh, you know, of, uh, of human behavior uh, to which we're uh, applying all of the moral inquiry, uh, commerce and policymaking in particular. Um, so the wealth of nations, in a way, is the virtue of the statesman, and he's applying um, the ideas of virtue from the moral sentiments, in a way, to the um, statesman in the actions, the conduct that uh, they do. I also think it speaks to the conduct of uh, the business person, the person in commerce, and what our attitudes ought to be about, about those activities. Um, in a very significant way, I think that the wealth of nations is a is probably the most important ever moral authorization for basically the honest pursuit of profit, okay, for commercial behavior. It's a moral authorization of that, which means that you shouldn't feel guilty about pursuing honest profit. Um, you shouldn't speak ill and be antagonistic towards your neighbors and fellows who pursue honest profit. And it's also a moral authorization to, to address to the statesman, the sovereign, however you want to think about it. The legislature. The legislator. Um, let people pursue honest profits in this commercial way. It actually works out well. The Wealth of Nations is a moral authorization of, of those different types, which I think is very important to understand the whole project. I also believe, I happen to fancy the idea that his moral authorization was actually very, I mean his specifically, was actually very significant in the extent to which the Industrial Revolution, you know, arose so rapidly and, 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 and so successfully, um, the sort of explosion that really follows just about the, his death. Um, because I think that uh, moral authorization matters, culture matters. So in this view, and this is going to take us to our first topic, I asked uh, – before we started the podcast, I asked Dan to talk about what we might hope to cover in this introduction – 
uh, and I just want to give you, the listener, a little bit of a, of a roadmap for our conversation. The first part, is, which we're going to continue, is this opening observation that the wealth of nations is part of a larger project that the theory of moral sentiments is, is the umbrella for. The second is uh, the dimensions of moral approval, what Smith called the sources of moral approval. How do we judge the actions of our, of our neighbors and our fellows? Third is Smith's ideas of justice. Smith's distinction between precise and vague rules for, uh, for behavior and Smith's distinction between justice and beneficence. beneficence. So I, I want to continue this point, make sure I understand what you're saying. Uh, in The Wealth of Nations, uh, I love the phrase moral authorization. Smith gives moral authorization for the – behavior of the business person, the person involved in commerce, um, the pursuit of honest profit. And the word honest there is important as, as an adjective, uh, often forgotten. Um, but of course, if you're going to give a moral authorization, you better have a system of morals. And so the theory of moral sentiments in that sense is the umbrella. It gives you the uh, – you know, we opened up talking about what are people really motivated by – uh, we've uh, mentioned in passing Thomas Sowell's book, A Conflict of Visions, where he contrasts someone who thinks that mankind can be perfected and that a, and a just system should be based on that versus those like Adam Smith who saw human beings as imperfect and that a, a just system was one that took that into account. So I, I, the way I understand what you're saying is the theory of moral sentiments lays out partly does lay out the nature of, of what humans are, what motivates them. But as you say, it goes beyond that. It's also a system for what we would like them to be, recognizing what they are or what constraints and laws, legislation might we expect to be successful and desirable given those moral motivations and limitations of actual human beings. Is that a good summary? Yes, it is. Do you is. want to add to it? Um, yes. I mean, one, one thing that occurs to me as you say, speak is that this whole distinction between what human beings are and sort of a project of what you should do, uh, 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 an exhortation, is almost a false dichotomy because partly what he's saying is that what human beings are are beings longing for exhortation, are beings looking for moral guidance. They're assessing, they're reviewing their own moral action. Um, so it's not even clear that there's a real distinction. So he's he's pursuing – he's got this cultural agenda, but in some sense, he just sees that as part of, you know, his take on what our wisdom is, you know, what wisdom is, what our good future what, – what our desirable future is. Notice I'm saying is and not ought. Because <laughs> right. um, in a sense, is uh, – you know, desirables, the notion of aspiration is part of what – Human beings are correct. So, so the whole notion of trying to draw that is an ought. Um, it's a nice point, but it it really is. I think maybe another way to say it in more modern terms: the distinction between individual and collective action. Right? Each of us individually may have an idea of what is the good, what is the proper, what is the yeah. the right behavior, getting us to coordinate our actions in some way, or to have our actions be coordinated to achieve good outcomes. En masse is a different enterprise. Yeah, definitely. And that obviously is part of the role of the states, statesman, the leader, the the body politic to to create the 
the constraints and and legislation that would allow us to achieve the good as each of us pursues the good. Yeah, those would all be considerations. Definitely in the moral sentiments, he's got the individual in society. It's it's not the individual uh, apart from society. It's 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 like the Stoics, where people are have a, nat- a natural sociability, and they're learning. This whole moral sense is part of a social awareness and, and social learning, as well as perhaps instinctual. Although he doesn't so much play that up, but I think it's highly congruent with um, with with his thinking. Actually, I th- I think it's not hard to read a lot of Hayekian evolutionary thinking into Smith. And whether Smith is that um, sincere when he speaks of God, um, even when he speaks of God, it's very equivocal. It's very, uh, very, very cloaked. Um, uh, it's not clear that he, he really sees the need for the evo- invocation of God. Um, Pract- a practical need, you're saying? Yes, yes. Uh, for his interpretations, it's not clear that the, the idea of a benevolent designer, okay, which is sort of the major notion which he asserts throughout this book. I'm not sure that he's asserting that out of anything more than convention. Um, I'm not sure that uh, anything of what he says really would depend on that as opposed, would depend greatly on that as opposed to a more evolutionary take, which saw us as not designed, but in fact aspiring towards a understandings of um of morality and beauty and things um that um kind of mimic as if there was a designer yeah interesting parallel to the economic system but let's come back to that down the road uh let's come back to our theme of the wealth of nations as uh an extension or application or sub piece of of the theory moral sentiments enterprise you want to talk about anything more about that um, there's one other thing you mentioned that um, I wanted to remark on. It's not – you said the theory of moral sentiments lays out the, what is moral or something. Actually, it's very vague. I mean it remains very mysterious sort of um, wherein morality, propriety exists. And he's very explicit about that remaining uh, – kind of loose, vague, and indeterminate. That on, on your the list you mentioned, one of the readings, actually two of the readings, um, speaks of this distinction between rules like grammar that are precise and accurate versus the rules of aesthetics, what he says, the rules that critics lay down for what is sublime and elegant in writing, which are necessarily loose, vague, and indeterminate. Um, and Basically, everything in the moral sentiments, except for his demand for commutative justice, okay, which um, he says is precise and accurate and indispensable, like grammar, except for that. Commutative justice being yeah. something, some version of uh, the punishment fitting the crime. Is that what you mean by commutative justice? What do you mean? Um, yeah, and that you shouldn't commit crimes that are violations of people's person, property, or violations of contract. So those are those are, yeah, black and white lines. Yes, those are those do come across as sort of black and light black and white lines for Smith. Um, I should add that in some of the ways he draws it, he also adds reputation. You shouldn't do anything to injure someone's reputation, which is um, a part that I don't particularly care for. Um, 
but but in in his most on page eighty four in, in his most I think fullest uh, description of of this justice he does not mention reputation but sometimes he does um, but apart from that justice okay and when he addresses justice he means just that justice so he 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 largely reserves that justice as justice um, other kinds of justice come up in just this one paragraph that I hope we talk about. Um, so basically, when he says justice, he means this commutative justice. So apart from justice, everything else is loose, vague, and indeterminate. Even prudence, okay, not just beneficence, generosity, um, and other becoming virtues, but um, even prudence he considers loose, vague, and indeterminate, which, um, you know, sometimes Deirdre McCloskey speaks of Max U theorizing as prudence only, and it seems to me that Max Youth, you know, the idea of maximizing your utility in, in, in uh, modern economics is actually more like a grammar because it's all laid out. And you kind of draw your optimal point and you get there and you know what to do. Um, so I'm not sure that, that that kind of theorizing is even prudence. Well, I think, <clears throat> I think Deirdre's using the word prudent. And we did a podcast uh, with her. You can find on – we'll put a link up to it, but uh, on these topics. But I think – their prudence has more of the everyday use, perhaps, of the term than um, than I think Smith clearly meant a wider use of the term. And even within the more grasping uh, caution sense of the term, uh, is it prudent to buy Treasury securities today, or is it imprudent? I mean, it's who knows? <laughs> it's grave, vague, and it's loose, yeah, vague, and indeterminate. Right. Uh, so it clearly is not a. Uh, right. I think I should have said bright line. It's not black and white, but it's either black and white or bright line where, where Smith would draw a distinction. Mm-hmm. Anything else about the wealth of nations? Um, uh, I'm not sure. Let me – how about if we turn to something about theory of moral sentiments? We're, we're talking about uh, a close connection between the wealth of nations and the theory of moral sentiments. And some people might object in some way. Um, the theory of moral sentiments is not pitched as a political book. Um, the kinds of interactions it discusses and focuses on are between neighbors, between equals, as he put it. Um, in fact, as of the fourth edition of the book, he added a lengthier subtitle, which I'd like to read. Yeah, go ahead. Um, the Theory of Moral Sentiments, or an essay towards an analysis of the principles by which men naturally judge concerning the conduct and character first of their neighbors and afterwards of themselves. So it's like your neighbors and yourself. It's about you know people in a civil society. In day-to-day life. In day-to-day life. It's not political particularly. So some people might um, – object to the kind of rather political reading we're we're, we're, we're giving the theory of moral sentiments. Um, I think that it's legitimate, pretty legitimate to draw these uh, political um, implications from the theory of moral sentiments. First of all, I think that he, he never says it explicitly in this book but that he very much wants a society where it is mostly about equals, where, 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 where there's not that much of the inferior-superior relationship, but it is about equals, and that's kind of the ideal. That's really his egalitarianism. 
and so I think he's promoting that and he's trying to see, trying to suggest we should put as much of society along those lines. In other words, degovernmentalize, depoliticize um, as much as we can. Because this is where virtues really reside. This is really how we um, develop them and how they best flourish. There are also certainly some pieces of the book which address politics. Um, explicitly. <clears throat> yes, explicitly. Um, and there's one well, there's one paragraph about the superior. Um, it's it's um, it's on page eighty one of my of the of the conventional edition. Yeah, the the page numbers that Dan's giving are out of um, the who publishes it, Dan? It's the it's Liberty the paperback Fund. Oh. Liberty Fund uh, edition that uh, that's for sale on that webpage. Uh, it's the standard edition that people read now. Yeah, um, and in this paragraph. It's kind of an aside, but he kind of leaves the door open to, hey, what I'm saying can be um, sort of overruled by the superior. He does sort of leave the door open to, um, you know, the superior, and he's vague about what the superior is, but he does speak of the civil magistrate, um, of the civil magistrate, say, violating commutative justice, okay? And we know from the Wealth of Nations that he endorsed some exceptions, okay, which I think um, he, he might term as expedience or politic, even going against commutative justice, at least commutative justice as it would apply if this were interaction between equals. Um, but for Smith, he wants to keep these exceptions exceptional. You know, he wants to treat exceptions as exceptions. He's serious about commutative justice or what he just called justice. Um, but he does, he does, there's no question about it, that he does sort of leave the door here and leave it open um, to, 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 to things beyond strict uh, compliance with, with commutative justice, which is really the liberty principle. You know, I mean, if government had to always abide by the liberty principle, they could never force people uh, in, in, uh, you know, to um, do things with their property or their person that uh, people didn't want to do. So they wouldn't be able to tax them. They wouldn't be able to regulate them, you know, in an interventionist way. So um, all of those things uh, would be violations of commutative justice uh, or natural liberty um, if we applied that same standard to the, quote, superior. Um, and then there's another – there's other parts in here that speak of politics. There's the famous a paragraph about the man of system, for example. One of my favorite quotes that – is on my mind these days a great deal. Do you, <laughs> yeah. Should we read that quote, by the way? Either of those, um, you want to read the first one or do you want to um, summarize that enough? I, I wouldn't mind reading The Man of System if you have it handy. Okay. The Man of System. Uh, this is 233, 234. The Man of System, on the contrary, that is contrary to the man of public spirit, um, is apt to be very wise in his own conceit and is often so enamored with the supposed beauty of his own ideal plan of government that he cannot suffer the smallest deviation from any part of it. He goes on to establish it completely and in all its parts without any regard either to the great interests or to the great prejudices which may oppose it. He seems to imagine that he can arrange the different members of a great society with as much ease as the hand arranges the different pieces upon a chessboard. He does not consider that the pieces upon the chessboard have no other principle of motion besides that which the hand impresses upon them, but that 
in the great chessboard of human society, every single piece has a principle of motion of its own, altogether different from that which the legislature might choose to impress upon it. And then he goes on to say that as long as um, the superior or the magistrate doesn't do anything at odds, too much at odds with each principle's own principle of motion, things go on harmoniously. But when it tries to push people around at odds with their principles of motion, uh, we get um, disorder. So that's a rather political. This part is part six, which was added in 1790, and um, which surely was written in light of what was going on in France, the French Revolution. Uh-huh. Fascinating. Um, but yeah. Well, let's move on. So, sure. so there, there's a our first point today is that is that the book is in a it's part of a larger project about justice and appropriate behavior for both the individual and the sovereign or the politician. And that the wealth of nations is part of that same project. It's not two different books in tension with each other. Um, let's talk about the dimensions of moral approval. What Smith called the sources of moral approval, and he gives he gives four. Yes. So what are they? Okay, uh, they are. Suppose we're considering the actions of some actor, Jim, uh, whatever those may be. Maybe he's helping a neighbor erect a shed. Um, he says that in judging of Jim's behavior, we, we consult four sources or dimensions of moral approval. The first is uh, – Are you, you going to quote now? I could do that. Yeah, why don't you quote him? What, what page is it? Okay, this is page 326. And we'll try to put links up to the paragraphs on the online version as well for these. First, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to break out with some remarks while I quote because okay, they're not always that clear. First, we sympathize with the motives of the agent. So in other words, if Jim is being neighborly to help his neighbor with the shed, we sympathize with his friendliness, beneficence, generosity. Um, secondly, we enter into the gratitude of those who receive the benefit of his actions. So we also appreciate the neighbor's gratitude. And we are in tune with that. So there's a big difference between walking over with a cup of sugar and then – or putting up a barn. Putting up a barn, there's a lot more gratitude. So he's saying right. we're aware of this, the magnet – and there's also a lot more sacrifice, obviously, for the, for Jim. But the point is that we're aware of the recipient's yeah. gratitude. Yes. And, I mean, you could imagine a case where Jim is trying to help is, – is out of generosity and sympathy or, or kindness, try, helping his neighbor um, when his neighbor doesn't really want his help. I mean, it's possible that we would sympathize we, – we, that, that point – that source <laughs> <Good> point. <laughs> one would be a check, good way to go, Jim. But point two would be like, hey, but wait a second. Your neighbor doesn't actually want you – you know, bothering him with this. He's quite got it under control and he's not grat- He's not grateful for it and we can understand that. So, for example, uh, in the uh, New York Times this past Sunday, there was an article about Vice President Biden's relationship with President Obama and it was revealed there that President Obama orders lunch for Biden. He picks out the menu because he wants to make sure that Joe is eating healthy. Uh-huh. So, uh, the presumption is that that's a beneficent act on the president's part and the vice president is grateful for the uh, healthy food. But if it were me, uh, I might not be so grateful. So I might want to prefer to eat my own unhealthy lunch or, and, and maybe the vice president feels the same way. But that, that's a nice uh, – that's an important distinction which we often kind of just focus on the motivation of the giver, forgetting sometimes the recipient mm-hmm. 
might have mixed feelings about it or negative feelings. Yeah. Like I've got my own shed design or barn design. Mm-hmm. I don't want yours. And they shows up with all his tools and his blueprints. And Okay. Right. So that's two. Okay. The third one is we observe that his, Jim's conduct, has been agreeable to the general rules by which those two sympathies generally act. So – what, th- th- this is put because there's a, confusing. a there's a there's a recapitulation of the four at the end of the paragraph, and and the recapitulation of this one is the perception of the agreement or disagreement of any action to an established rule, and so what's going on in the third source is that the the interactions that we're considering are proper to the setting the occasion. Let me suggest a, a, an example again to kind of draw the distinction. Suppose in a court, um, a um, judge, uh, you know, had someone in front of him who uh, who was in for um, a violation, maybe maybe uh, some kind of crime, okay, and then out of overwhelmed by some kind of compassion, the ju- the judge says, "I'm going to relent and not." sort of make you do these punishments and we're not, we're not going to punish you. That would be kind of generous, okay, and in a way beneficent. The guy on trial would be grateful. Very grateful, absolutely. But there's something about, there's a mismatch there with the context in which these two interact. It's not proper to the to the situation. Um, and so we also want propriety. I mean, in the same way, like if if someone came, you know, the bo- the baker, the butcher, the brewer, um, it's not proper to appeal to them for to, sort of out of beneficence, to appeal to their charity. And maybe you would to Jim the baker in another context, but to do it on the floor of his bakery when there's customers around, um, and perhaps even if he's responsive, but it's not where it's done. It's not, it's not according to the, as he calls, established rule here of the setting. Well, it's an interesting example. You know, if, if, you're, if Jim the baker's your neighbor and you say – my children are hungry. I'm struggling. I just got laid off. Can I have some bread? And Jim says, absolutely. That's different, as you say, to do it in a crowded floor of his bakery where he is then saying no to other people exactly. who, who would be put in – a bunch of people might be put in some kind of awkward situation or that, that, that there's an arbitrariness to it that's yeah. unattractive as a moral action maybe. Yeah, another possible example of this is where people want, say, pharmaceutical companies to, you know – Give away their give yeah. away their product and act like charities. It's like, well, maybe they want to serve some charitable roles, but you know they kind of have to segment it in the right way in terms of their normal practices and understanding to stay in business. And right, yeah. it's like you can't confuse the focal points of everyday interaction with all these different. Um, okay, so there's that third, and then the fourth. Now the fourth, just th- those first three, the motivations, intentions of Jim. Um, the feelings of the people on whom Jim acts. We've talked about gratitude, but it could also be resentment if Jim does something nasty. Um, the the properness of those feelings to the context. And then the fourth one throws it wide open, Russ. It's kind of like everything else. Let me read it. And And last of all, when we consider such actions as making a part of a system of behavior which tends to promote the happiness either of the individual or of the society, they appear to derive a beauty from this utility, not unlike that which we ascribe to any well-contrived machine. What does that mean? It means 
we have to think about how this fits into the grand scheme of things, the long-term consequences of this, the precedents it sets, the things that weren't seen or intended uh, that matter in this big view. So this fourth one throws it wide open, okay? Now, when we're talking about, well, when we're talking about commerce and people pursuing honest profit, we know that that redounds to all sorts of benefits downstream, people you don't know and don't see. And that's one reason that Smith, you know, wanted us to help, wanted to help us see that and to morally authorize honest profit because uh, it, at the fourth source, the farmer, the baker, and so on is doing more than just the first three very micro seeable kinds of moral moral things. Um, I'm thinking about uh, about price gouging, where and tell me if this is three or four. Um, a restriction on price gouging, so-called price gouging, that is the aftermath of a natural disaster, mm-hmm. um, the political and sometimes just social pressure from certain parties that it is immoral to charge a premium in times of distress. And we've talked about this before here. Um, you're suggesting that Smith would invoke Ford potentially to say that if you create a climate where – you're not allowed to recoup some of your inventory costs when uh, you've um, stored up stuff in the possibility of a hurricane or an earthquake or a flood, that you'll have long-run consequences that are not – the person who's advocating for no premium of price is missing the fuller picture potentially of the incentives down the road. Yeah. Is that a good example? It's a great example because there's something if you know if we see a kind of moral some moral connection and community in our exchange in our marketplace you know when we go to the market we're a customer right we're doing something by custom uh, and and traditionally particularly in say the 1770s it might have been there might have been a stronger sense of connection to the merchant that you customarily purchased from and 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 he customarily served you and definitely. Sources one, two, and three might suggest, hey, I know it's hard times and I don't want to like ask you a great price even though I could pursue this honest profit because I know it's more than you're accustomed to and you're hard up and everything else. And then at source four, and it's not just speculation because Smith in The Wealth of Nations says just what you said. He said we have to let it be unregulated uh, in a famine and so on. Uh, you know, we have to let speculators speculate. Um, because when we step back and think about the full consequences of, of, of restricting in these markets, we see that people won't take the same precautions. They won't step in with supplies as they would be. They won't, you know, be be kind of showing the foresight needed to make it not so bad when it does happen. And so that's a perfect example. So this is a great example of how the fourth source, see, Smith goes on and writes The Wealth of Nations because he knows darn well that people need a lot of instruction at that fourth source. People don't understand the unseen, to use Hazlitt's or Bastiat's metaphor, and and that by and large, natural liberty or the free market works out very well in terms of the fourth source. If people don't appreciate that, it's not going to have as much weight and bearing as it should when they consider all four of the moral dimensions, right? And they're going to go too much on one, two, and three, which if they don't, you know, see the damage at source four, uh, they're going to go wrong. And you could argue socialism is an attempt to 
imposed one, two, and three and ignoring four, um, right? It's it, There's such a natural impetus uh-huh. in, in humans to look at the seen rather than the unseen. I, I fear sometimes that only economists or the people and people who've studied economics are, are aware of some of the unintended and sometimes intended consequences, the complexity of the of the whole enterprise. Yeah, that's a that's a complicated. You're saying that socialism kind of ignores the fourth source. I, I shouldn't have said that. What I should have said was the the impetus of the political process to impose short run regulation for the here and now to help okay. help people is such a natural impulse. Okay. And yes. socialism is an yes, extreme not version socialism, of it. just yeah. everyday Washington DC. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And 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 people you know most people don't uh, you know I feel and Smith certainly feels don't appreciate you know how markets work, right? And how for that matter how interventions don't work so often. Um he even says things to this effect. Um, so he sort of even says that, you know, people are poor sort of in these areas and need instruction. So, yeah, definitely um, people kind of either ignore or go wrong on the four source. And that's why he goes off and writes The Wealth of Nations. It's like, hey, I've got to get them to readjust how they think about these things, how they weigh these four. Because, look, there's four. There's not one. That's why it all ends up to be loose, vague, and indeterminate. There's no single algorithm here. There's no resolution. No weights on the four. Right, right. There are no weights. There are no, there's no magic formula. There's multiplicity. That's why, in the end, these moral judgments about anything of real significance is loose, vague, and indeterminate. And they interrelate, actually, these four. Um, they interrelate, I think, more than he kind of even lets on or explicitly addresses because, you know, whether we sympathize at source one with the motives of the agent will depend to some extent on how much economics we know, as it were, what we've been learned to think of as propriety in individual behavior. But, you know, I think more than that, I think, you know, somebody who well-intentioned aids his or her neighbor in a way that harms the neighbor and creates resentment. Um, I think a lot of people would struggle with whether that's a moral act. A lot of people would say, "It's a what do you mean? Of course it's a moral act. The person meant well. By definition, it's a moral act. I think it's an incredibly rich idea of Smith's to say, no, you can't just judge it on the basis of the intention of the of the – of the actor. You've got to look at the impact on the recipient. I mean that alone is, is sort of a revolutionary idea. The idea that, for example, that you would uh, create a dependency or worse, ignore some per- imperfect knowledge that you have because you, you – know, excuse me, ignore the knowledge of your neighbor's situation and presume that you know what kind of food they should eat at lunch it is – changes it obviously and potentially in Smith's mind from a moral act to an immoral act. Mm-hmm. So you, e- you can easily have tension yeah. between the two, and and he's saying, as you say, it's it's loose, vague, and indeterminate. How, you'd want to wait. Well, how much harm? How much could he have been expe- someone who should be expected to know the neighbor's situation and and having missed the harm that the person's doing would change how you evaluated the morality right. of the act. And he plays up local knowledge and how much others don't know as much as we do about our own affairs, particularly statesmen. Um, so, I mean, to, to extend what you're saying to politics, it's especially – and I think this breakdown of four dimensions or four sources you know, kind of helps us to think about politics and what goes wrong because politics often um, 
government often sets up procedures and points of view which exclude a lot of the bad things at the fourth source. It, it, they blind themselves, as it were, to the bad things at the fourth source, you know, the bad indirect consequences, okay, which get left out, uh, which don't get represented, which are dispersed, which are not intended, and hence not as, as conspicuous or salient. So there's a sort of uh, silencing of a lot of what should actually be vocal or seen um, in the ju- in the judgment, and I think that's one of the reasons Smith doesn't like a governmentalized society is that these four sources need to communicate with each other, right? There needs to be a kind of free, candid flow, okay, so that things that matter at the four source speak to our thinking about the more micro one, two, and three sources. Um, so that there's sort of more cultural um, consistency, okay, or cohesion uh, in, the, in, in, in what gets done and how we all think about it. So we want a better world. There are people who want a f- free society not only want a, a better world materially, we want a better world culturally. And uh, I think that thinking about these, the relations be- between these four sources and how politics affects that, you know, helps to explain how that can lead to a preference for a freer society. Well, let me challenge you a little bit um, and and let you talk, if you want, about some of those cultural effects because this is going to take us a little bit potentially away from our our four-point podcast, but I think it's a nice point in the discussion to bring this up. Um, Based on what you've said so far, I want to I want to represent uh, Charles Dickens as a um, antagonist to, to some of this. Um, Dickens writing in the middle of the first half, roughly in, in late first half of the nineteenth century, so fifty to seventy five years after Smith uh, in the Wealth of Nations and something after that in the Moral Sentiments. Dickens really caricatures a uh, capitalist view, a modern free market view uh, of commerce in his character of Gradgrind. I think it's in Hard Times. And Gradgrind, he, he there's a famous paragraph. I don't have it handy, but this famous paragraph, you know, everything can be reduced to money. It's all costs and benefits. And uh, Gradgrind is homo economicus. Uh, uh, He's Max U, as to use Deirdre McCloskey's phrase. Gradgrind is the um, the green eye shade of calculation, and Gradgrind is despicable. Gradgrind is is to be an object, and clearly of, of Dickens' derision. And I think he's countering, to some extent, maybe explicitly even, the moral authorization that that you invoke for Smith uh, on Smith's behalf. This idea that uh, and I'm reacting to your earlier comment about your customary as a customer, which I love that uh, you're, you're at the baker or the butcher or your your local tradesman, and you're interacting in this uh, customary way. There's a set of norms around what's acceptable, what's unacceptable, and it's clearly evolutionary. Uh, it's evolved those 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 norms and customs of commerce. And Smith, I think, saw those as enlightening and Dickens sees them as degrading. Smith uh, 
Dickens sees the pursuit of honest profit and the pursuit of a good deal on the part of a customer as a little bit dehumanizing. And of course, Dickens' followers down the historical timeline have amplified on that. Smith's followers and Smith really don't make their case very well. So I'm going to ask you to make it, which is my impression is, is that Smith saw the the mutual the benefits of mutually of excuse me the mutual benefits of voluntary exchange as enhancing of our humanity, enhancing that there's a morality to those transactions. Am I correct? Would Smith say that? Would you say that's a correct interpretation of Smith? I think um, partly. Um, I, I I think that Smith really is a comparativist, and um, he's kind of asking, well, what are what are our alternatives? One is to embrace the voluntary principle and let people do it. Um, the other one is to the other alternative is to somehow try to restrict it, and um, like Frederick W. Maitland, my reading of Smith is um, not really that he puts the, the emphasis exclusively or primarily even on the invisible hand. That, um, gee, look, if you just think through the voluntary system, it actually works out quite beautifully and there's kind of a universal harmony, uh, kind of as Bastiat painted it. But Maitland says that just as much Smith is saying that the alternative – is got such bad problems of its own. Um, you know, he's very critical of government and how little they know. He doesn't even go in as deeply as he could about how their motives could be screwy, although he does talk about how those, how the government is misled and usurped by other interest groups. Um, so Smith, Smith ultimately, I think, is saying, look, there are some focal alternatives out there which we need to kind of focus on and, in a sense, select from. I mean... <laughs> Cultures have to cohere around sort of principles, and we only have certain primary options. Um, one of them is this sort of classical liberalism, which puts the presumption on liberty. And he says, look, it's not necessarily so beautiful. Dickens maybe has a point, and co commercial society is going to create this, these new situations, uh, breakdowns of community, uh, more anonymity, at least in our commercial transactions. Now, all that's going to create a fund for each of us to go and do a lot of our own community and 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 love and beneficence. Um, so, I don't think that I don't think you should say that. No, no, Smith said that. No, commerce is just as wonderful as you know old time community or something like that. It's more like this is the way it's going, and let it let it you know go with it. He's saying go with the flow. You know, commercial society is coming. We see it, uh, I've seen it, you know, developing rapidly in Scotland where I've been growing up and, and, and uh, there's probably a lot more on the way. And rather than trying to hedge it in and control it and just kind of like go with what the, the core of it, which can work out well, um, and, and kind of learn to accept the, the imperfections, the, yeah, the fragmentations and imperfections that it's going to bring with it, um, and I think again, that's part of his cultural agenda. Kind of like you got to learn to sort of love to you got to learn to love McDonald's, as it were. Not that you have to have to actually learn to like their hamburgers, but you have to kind of not be offended by seeing the McDonald's on the corner and the fact that other people want to go there and get their cheeseburgers. But I'm raising the fault. Let me let me ask the question in a different way. I've heard Walter Williams say 
that uh, people get up early in Idaho to keep their potatoes uh, healthy um, so they can make money. And that in turn allows people in New York City, which doesn't have a lot of land for potatoes, to have potatoes. And Mm -hmm. cattle ranchers in Texas get up early and go through a lot of pain and suffering to make sure cattle gets to – beef gets to New York. And that's not done out of love and care. It's done out of money and self-interest. Walter even I think uh, delights in calling it greed. Um, I like calling it self-interest. But – and then Walter poses the rhetorical question, how much – Meat and potatoes would make its way to New York if you had to rely on the beneficence and love of people in Idaho and Texas. And I think most people would say not so much. Mm-hmm. The question is, given these four sources of approval, maybe it'd be less beef and potatoes, but it'd be a better world because it would the motivation, you know, part one of the four would be there. This this love and and caring rather than this pure profit motive. Right. Does Smith have anything to say about that? No, I, th- that's a very good point. I think that is, speaks very much to the politics that followed Smith's time, particularly in the democratic age, where the in the democratic age, um, uh, you know, in the second half of the 19th century, particularly coming forward, I consider ourselves now in a sort of social democratic age. Um, the whole notion is sort of us taking care of us. And that sort of the first sort of it's it's the group writ large, basically defined by the polity, who become actors at the first three sources. And we're very caught up in the intentions and gratitudes of 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 these political acts. Um, and meanwhile, they do very, I think, very bad political economy at the fourth source. Um, so, yeah, but Smith, I would say that Smith really didn't address that or particularly even see it coming. But let's okay. That's fine. But let, let let you and I talk about this for a sec outside of Smith. When when the government uh, creates a social security system, uh, you're saying that that might affect assessing that by the claims of Rule Four would be, uh, you know, the long term consequence that it would be um, would be one of the drawbacks of the system. I, I see it more as it ruins one through three because it destroys. The natural yes. forces between parent and child, sometimes which are miserable and, and antagonistic, but what, what has always bothered me about the modern welfare state is is that while it does raise a lot more money than private charity because of its coercive ability and to overcome the free rider problem through force, it destroys the human side of caring about your neighbor, which is part one and part two yeah. uh, of those rules. So. On the one hand, I think Smith's taxonomy is very interesting because it, it gives you a way of assessing the, the richness of human life in a whole bunch of different ways. But I have to then concede as a market-oriented guy that my preferred world without Social Security, say, or without regulations against price gouging will – although really good at four – are going to have one through three problems. And that you know it's not so clean for for our case. I'm just wondering if yes. if if Smith ever saw that tension, um, or if you see that tension. If I'm right, I totally agree. I totally see that tension. I totally agree with you about, as it were, uh, the moral consequences of social security and 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 interventionism in general. I was trying to suggest that a bit 
earlier, though I didn't have Social Security in mind, about the sources not com communicating with each other and integrating with each other and things in politics being left unsaid and tabooed and so on, which I definitely think is true. So, so what I said about the social democratic age is that I'm kind of seeing, was speaking of how they see it, um, a certain take on the first three sources, um, but not the only take, and I don't think particularly the enlightened enlightened take. So, so, so. But that's their take on capitalism, right? Yeah. The social democratic take on capitalism is it's great at four. You know, it delivers the goods, but it degrades the human yeah. spirit. And I that's feel right. well. There are certainly moments when the human spirit's degraded when. You know, you don't have enough money to buy your kid the latest toy or whatever is the issue that leads to hardship in a in a modern free market state. Um, we have to yeah. concede that that, that it's yeah. relative to what their system does. Really, uh, morally, communitarian wise, it does it does well in many in many respects. But that's better. loose, vague, and indeterminate. Yeah, <laughs> so it's what I'm, yeah. I'm having to confront. And here. a lot of what they say about us, as it were, is sort of of their own knitting. It's like they kind of say that all that, that you know, those free market guys say that people only care about material wealth and that morals don't matter. And then they like attack the system as though it's that, right? right. Um, it's a little bit of a caricature you're saying. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, but what, what bugs me a lot is, I mean, here's Smith, right? He's kind of like, I, I think, uh, a great fountainhead of original liberalism he wrote a whole book about why we're not that why we have this natural innate impulse towards sympathy right towards um coordinated sentiment uh, like hunger i mean he just posited it and so somehow um, we care about the hungry you say positive you know, no i'm saying just like we have hunger Oh, it's something that we just we just Can't recognize help. yeah it's we a natural impulse right. it's sort of something we just posit in our theorizing he equally equally posited that we have this concern to connect sentimentally, okay, with others and to share experiences and 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 so on. He didn't even try to explain it. I mean, he didn't he didn't try to derive it from something. He just said that's the way people are. Very different than the Homo economicus, you know, slander, as it were, uh, on on classical liberalism, which you often hear. Um. But yeah, so you have these four <laughs> four sources, and they can conflict. Um, That's very interesting. Um, okay, should we, should we move to? Yeah, let's, um, let's move to something else. Although I, I, I um, yeah. if I mean, I don't mind dwelling on this, but there's a couple other. No, let's let's move on. Let's talk okay. about uh, Smith's site. You want to talk about justice? Yes. Okay. This is this is another really important paragraph in my view. It's on pages two sixty nine. 270, um, and it comes in his part seven where he reviews uh, other moral systems and relates those to his own. So, so it comes just as just as the four moral sources comes in this part seven, very sort of off the track, right? It's like if this is so important, why didn't he put it up front? This is one of the reasons this book is so mysterious: is that it's not written in a way where he's helping you kind of directly see what's. The way it's structured and, and so on. Um, but anyway, in this paragraph, he, he distinguishes different notions of justice. And I think it's important uh, in interpreting the whole. The whole. Um, one 
is the justice we've made mention of, the commutative justice. And this is the only place in this book where he actually uses the modifier commutative for this justice. Otherwise, he just calls it justice. Um, but anyway, this commutative justice, which basically is like respecting other people's stuff. He says, abstaining from what is another's. That's his exact words. That's commutative justice. That's commutative justice. And, uh, and as I mentioned, he specifies person, property, promises due others and contracts. And sometimes he also includes reputation, alas. <laughs> um, so well, we'll talk about that when we get to maybe down the road again. I, that's fascinating to me, but go ahead. Okay, so there's commutative justice. There's a couple other justices here. One of them is distributive justice, okay? He says, which consists in proper beneficence in the becoming use of what is our own, okay? So Read in that again. It's a really proper full line. <laughs> he, he says that distributive justice, and he's got an asterisk there, by the way, with an important footnote we'll get back to. Distributive justice consists in proper beneficence in the becoming use of what is our own. Becoming is a word we don't use in that sense anymore. He meant, um, I guess in the same way the word comely used to be used, meaning attractive, yeah. right? desirable, admirable. Yes, that's, that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, and he's defining this distributive justice, again, in terms of ownership, of becoming use of what is our own. Yeah. Now, what exactly do we consider to be our own? And who is this our? How does he mean our own? And at that... It seems straightforward. Our property would be the obvious interpretation. He's saying that we might give f food to the hungry or... Russ might give some of his own to the hungry. Right. Dan might give some of his own right. to the hungry. That's exactly what I think he means by it. And I think that interpretation is supported by the footnote. I can't imagine another interpretation. So read the footnote first and then tell me what the other one is. Oh, no, there is very much another <laughs> interpretation, Russ. Oh, because of our? Because it's a plural? Yeah. Oh, I yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. It depends on your whole view of the polity. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, he says in the footnote, the distributive justice of Aristotle is somewhat different. It consists in the proper distribution of rewards from the public stock of a community. Mm. That's so, his footnote. Yes, that's at Smith's footnote. And he's saying, mine differs from Aristotle because Aristotle's <laughs> talking about the, the community's own. Whereas I'm talking about Russ's own, Dan's own, Jim's own. And yet he's basically affirming the idea of distributive justice. So he sees a different configuration of ownership, okay, than Aristotle. And, and, I, and I would argue than social Demo Democrats generally today who, in my view, ultimately see the resources of a polity as owned collectively by we, kind of we part of this club um, in which you have voting rights and in which you're free to leave. You can go move to some other country. No one's stopping you. It's a free, voluntary but all this stuff is owned, and then we make rules through the democratic process and government administration. We make rules delegating to you different subdomains of what you can do with that car and what you can do with that house, which ultimately is or really – Or that income, which ultimately is really ours, the collectivity, okay? But we let you call your own within these sort of understood subdomains. And so – that different configuration of, 
ownership, in my view, is what um, social justice implies. So in other words, I would distinguish between distributive justice, as, as um, Smith meant it, and social justice by saying that the former understands a libertarian or classical liberal configuration of ownership. No, this is my car. No, this is my house. You're just putting restrictions on what is mine. It's not yours to start, and then you're giving me certain subdomains. It's like if you – and if you tell me I can't hire somebody for less than $7 an hour – that's a restriction on my liberty, okay, and my person and freedom of contract. It's not just defining the subdomain which you've given me. So it's a very different configuration of ownership. Um, and I would, that's how I would distinguish between Smith's libertarian distributive justice and social justice. In my view, so, I, I, I try to read, and I think I can sustain a reading of Adam Smith where there is no social justice. He does not in any way um, – uh, yeah. But others now are making a social justice reading of Smith, like Sam Fleischhocker um, and a couple other people in that vein. But <clears throat> it it does go beyond, um, I would say, the uh, the Randian concept of the virtues of selfishness, right? Where it's suggesting that you have an obligation as an individual, not as through the body politic. You have an obligation to right a wrong when you see a person suffering to give them charity or to make sure they have the wherewithal to pursue the trade that they are trained in or whatever would be the – right? It's using the word justice about your state yes. of affairs and mine, but it's not recognizing the authority of a larger concept of property as the – framework for thinking about how any redistribution would take place, any, excuse me, transfers would take place. So it's, it's not a redistribution, to use a, uh, a la the language of modern Yeah, thought. it's not a political... In, in modern thought, when we say redistribution, a lot of people get offended by that because it suggests that the state, that there is some initial distribution, like it is yeah. handed out rather than created. And I think it's appropriate to say it's created. That is the right way to think about it. But what Smith is saying, if I understand you correctly, is that once it's created, there is an aspect of what happens after the fact in how we relate to our our fellows and our neighbors that is appropriate and some that is not. Absolutely. Um, and the big distinction he draws between – based on this – really based on this ownership uh, idea, you know, is that justice, commutative justice can be protected by force. Okay, um, and can be established by force can be established by force, and viol violators of it, people who fail in commutative justice, can be physically, coercively punished, deterred, and so on. Hanged. Yeah. Uh, so you, in the worst you can, case, you can hang a murderer. You can you can imprison a, a thief. You right. can. Whereas distributive justice has absolutely no claim on on like pun like physical enforcement or or punishment. There's – it's – any – yes, there are moral obligations um, to serve distributive justice, beneficence, generosity, and so on. But if someone fails to do it, you know, you can frown on him. You can do other things with your own resources maybe to – you know, to frown on him socially, but you can't actually molest him. You can't actually take from him. 
So you can't violate the liberty principle. That's right. You can't mess with his stuff. Um, and fine him. You can't tax him. That's so, right. Yeah. That's right. Now he says all that. I have to say, in relation to the interactions among equals. So he doesn't bar, this is what I was saying before, he doesn't bar the idea of a, quote, superior perhaps forcing people to give to charity. Expedient. Yeah, (laughs) I have to admit that. Um, I don't think he's saying it enthusiastically, but it's not, he brings it up. He says anything like this should be done with great caution and taken too far as destructive of all liberty and security. But it's not like he says that's that can't be done, okay? He's talking about of equals. But it's clear that he's interested in having a society that's principally about, you know, based on this egalitarian kind of system where you can't force other people to be beneficent. Um, that all this stuff has to be by choice, uh, by, by their own impulse. You know, the principal emotion of the chess piece, right, has to learn what is becoming. And it's not going to be becoming, right, unless they do it. Well, you know, that's why... Yeah, I've always argued, I don't know if this is Smithian or not, but I've always argued that, you know, forcing someone to be charitable doesn't make them charitable. Right. There's nothing beneficent about forcing someone to help someone else. Uh, in fact, it's the opposite. Yes. It, it induces resentment. It destroys the human, what's important about the human enterprise, while at the same time, we have to admit that people are often more self-interested than we'd sometimes like them to be, and they will not always help the stranger or the – and I'm not talking here about, you know – That's right. About – uh, somebody giving uh, ma- massive aid to a, a poor person. I'm just talking about fellow feeling. I mean, it's, there's a whole range of stuff here. We're not just talking about the dramatic cases. We're talking about everything to me from hate speech to uh, racism to uh, anti-Semitism to sexism to rudeness, uh, that, that all those things are bad. And uh, we want to live in a world where, they're, where they don't exist. We also understand that people have a natural impulse to many of those things. And that by making them illegal, we do not transform human beings. We simply uh, set in motion a set of expensive, hard to monitor, often consequences. Sometimes we might decide, as yeah. you say, it might be worth it, even though it's it, it's imperfect to, to use the power of the state in those settings. Generally, I'm against it. These subtler things, you know, we're not talking about about lynching. We're talking about rudeness and, and cruelty, but. Uh, Making cruelty illegal doesn't make human beings better. It, it, that, there are better ways to create yeah. better human beings. Yeah, and in fact, it could even upset ways of making the people natural. better. Because like giving to charity, if the government is going to make us give so much, which goes to welfare or some kind of redistribution worthy, let's say, if it's like, okay, they, altogether they took $5,000 from me, okay? Now... If instead they take they, they take nothing from me and I had given five thousand dollars, there would be those moral first f- moral sources speaking there of you know Dan actually made a becoming use of what is his own and you know that there was some concern there some generosity there that would um, evoke some gratitude and recognition and be some coming together on that um, and so on and and then a step you know norms developing about how those two interact for the third source and so on but okay now they've taken five five thousand dollars from me through force I mean something I have no choice in um, except for to leave the country um, but but basically invaded my stuff um, and now we don't know what moral significance it has you know the mess the moral message is lost because it wasn't, you know, a, a, an act of my own choice. 
And I think the other side to this would argue, uh, well, you should be proud to be coerced into giving the money. But I think that's a hard sell. Uh, maybe it's because I'm an imperfect person. Maybe I need to refine myself better. But uh, we're getting short on time. I, I want to turn – is there another type of justice you want – we've talked about commutative and distributive. Is there another type? There is another type. It's um, – I'm not sure we should get to it. It's, he talks about esteem. Um, we probably shouldn't get to it. And so there's this third type. And then I should also add that all these together make up Plato's justice. Plato's idea of justice was sort of encompassing all of these which Smith recognizes – so, so you have the encompassing one, platonic, you have commutative, you have distributive, you have this one which I would call esteem justice, so I'm not going to get to explain it. And then outside of this set that Smith recognizes is social justice. So in terms of talking about Smith and justices, I think ultimately there are five to keep track of. Okay. And... Mm-hmm. Con- go ahead. Well, I was going to close. I want to close okay. our conversation to talk about justice and beneficence. Okay. All right. So he's got um, this is a section um, devoted to called of justice and beneficence, um, and there's quite a lot here. Here he sets out some of the things we've mentioned about how justice can be forced. Um, what can be meaning. That, that if someone that messes with your stuff, you can stop them, you can punish them, you can, you can sort of force them not to break okay. into your house. Um, and, and, and violators um, can be physically you know, punished, uh, even among equals, okay? Uh, neighbors can kind of uh, fight against violators of this. And that benef- beneficence... So self-defense and... Yeah. And obvious yeah. example, somebody breaks into your house, you shoot them and kill them. Yeah. That's a just act, even yeah, though you're securing your own them. property. Yeah. Yes. And, and here, he, you know, he's speaking of beneficence, not of distributive justice. Again, I want to emphasize that it's only at the end of the book, when he's refu- reviewing other doctrines, that he introduces these modifiers, commutative and distributive. So he's just calling it beneficence here. Where? And, uh, this is page 78 to 91. He's calling what beneficence justice? He's, he's equating them? Uh, the becoming use of what is your own, uh-huh. that kind of thing. Uh, it's, beneficence might not be the only virtue of distributive justice, but it's a principal one. Um, so it's becoming use of what is your own, beneficence. Um, it cannot be forced. It should not be forced, at least among equals. He has the superior paragraph on page 81 where he does leave the door open to the superior possibly. Superior meaning a, a, a political figure, the sovereign, the state. Yes, the- and he also speaks briefly of parents and children, like parent being superior to the child. Um, I, I would like to in justice, it would be <laughs> in some kind of justice. It would probably be best to read this whole paragraph, where he um, kind of opens that door. But um, perhaps more opportunistically, I want to read the final sentence of it, or uh, or the final two sentences of all the duties of a lawgiver. However, this that is kind of forcing people to do good by each other, forcing good offices among equals. This perhaps is that which it requires the greatest delicacy and reserve to execute with propriety and judgment. To neglect it altogether exposes the commonwealth to many gross disorders and shocking enormities. And to push it too far is destructive of all liberty, security, and justice. Um, so he, What's he referring to there? With the shocking enormities? Yeah, he's talking about 
a coercive redistributive justice is what you're saying? Yeah. He's yeah. So you're saying that there are cases where the superior is allowed to violate this principle of, of liberty, that a presumption of liberty and, and coerce people maybe to collect funds for some good cause uh, and and rather than relying just on the individual beneficence. But if he goes too far, it's hideous. Yes. What's his justification for that? What, or what did he have in mind, do you think? Um, Tyranny? Well, I suppose so, yes. Um, but I, yeah, something like that. I mean, it doesn't elaborate. It's, it's, a very, it's a one-off paragraph where he's just kind of acknowledging. You know what's remarkable about it? What? You have never heard it before, um, or at least don't remember it. Uh, I like to pretend I read more than a few pages of this book, although it's probably just a few pages um, in the past. It's remarkably um, parallel to Hayek's paragraph in The Fatal Conceit when he talks about the microcosm and the macrocosm and the natural impulse to take the connections in the family and extend them beyond the family to society at large. Mm -hmm. Where Hayek says um, – here, let me, let me find the quote. This is a quote that I think we've read at least twice, Ernie can talk. I, I, I'm tempted to say you can't read it enough. He says, part of our present difficulty is that we must constantly adjust our lives, our thoughts, and our emotions in order to live simultaneously within different kinds of orders according to different rules. If we were to apply the unmodified, uncurbed rules of the microcosmos, i.e. of the small band or troop, or of, say, our families, to the macrocosmos, our wider civilization, as our instincts and sentimental yearnings often make us wish to do, we would destroy it. Yet, if we were always to apply the rules of the extended order to our more intimate groupings, we would crush them. So we must learn to live in two sorts of world at once. To apply the name society to both or even to either is hardly of any use and can be most misleading. See chapter 7, close quote. But that line, if we would apply – if we were to apply the unmodified, uncurbed rules of the microcosmos to the macrocosmos as our instincts and sentimental yearnings often make us wish to, we would destroy it. And what mm -hmm. he's – and I – I, there were a couple ellipses in that final rereading of it. Mm -hmm. You know what he's saying there is essentially, we have this natural beneficence for the people close to us, our children, our loved ones, our spouses, our brothers and sisters, our parents, and if we try to take that natural beneficence to the larger order, which has been a great dream of many utopians, we will destroy society. We will, it'll lead to tyranny, and essentially that's kind of what Smith is saying there, right? He's saying that. That there is a um, – that this sort of okay yeah. exception is extremely dangerous, right? Yes. I think that's a good fit. Um, slightly different. Slightly different. I understand. But, but, but basically, yeah, but I think that's a good fit. the drama of it is just it, – yeah. the, the hyperbole of it, the yeah. seeming hyperbole. I think right. it's not hyperbole, but and – And what he specifies as being destroyed, Smith, liberty, security, and justice. So it's like he's kind of affirming – as it were, a kind of libertarian understanding of liberty and of justice here. Uh, Why? Well, if the, if, the, if the magistrate is regulating behaviors or making us uh, give to certain things, those are violations of commutative justice, it would seem, that uh, he's saying, um, and of liberty, okay? Which I think dovetails with Smith's natural liberty statements in The Wealth of Nations. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, the justice and the liberty are kind of two sides of the same coin. 
because big part of liberty is is ownership, um, what is our own person, property, and so on, and um, justice is abstaining from what is another's. So yeah, that's very interesting. There's two sides of the same coin. So he didn't have any. Uh, there's no free riding problems in Adam Smith. There's no public. Well, there might be no. some public goods. Um, in the Wealth of Nations, he talks about things that, yeah, uh, are like public goods. And maybe those are his exceptions for where the magistrate might That's right. violate the – That's right. Um, and, and perhaps tax people and so on, how to pay for them. Um, uh, there, 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 there is those. I don't think – I think they get overstated. Um, and I do think he's kind of – silent about whether exactly such taxations are a violation of justice or not. Um, how exactly you parse Smith's use of the word justice is unresolved in my mind. Um, and I think he kind of says when it's the superior and when the superior is essentially forcing people, it's, it's, a, it's a question of expediency and we're not actually going to count it as unjust. Um, just for the, at least not just on the basis that it's violating someone's property. Um, uh, so there's, there's some questions here, but yeah, no, he has the door open to public goods, but I think he tends, I, I think people overplay that. I think he tends to diminish that. Um, well, it, you know, there, there are paragraphs, right, in the Wealth of Nations where he, he accepts the legitimacy of government action beyond the enforcement of contracts. It's say. more than paragraphs, though. Right. It's more than yeah. It's 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 pages. It's okay. it's it's quite. I mean, there's 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 education. There's there's internal improvement stuff. But he favors user fees. And even in education, I think people vastly overstate his endorsement of state f of tax financed education. I think he was quite ambiguous about it actually. Um, um, and of course, there's the administration of justice. He definitely sees the government as you know the night watchman. Yeah, yeah sure. absolutely. And then he's got a whole, you know, chapters on taxation and how that is best done. But I'm thinking about this particular issue of of distributive justice. Oh, there's nothing on that. Mm, there's there's almost there a nothing. Paragraph about the rich man and his carriage. Oh, there's this. That's what I meant when I said there's a paragraph. Ah, uh, I see. I see what you mean. Um, that that again is something which I think gets greatly overblown. There's a remark about um, why the tolls on. You know, luxury carriages ought to be or maybe higher uh, just basically because, you know, you know it's someone rich who can pay for it. Um, Suggesting an egalitarian strength. Yeah, right. Right, a kind of progressive taxation. Um, uh, yes, it's just a passing remark there. Um, I, don't, I don't think it implies a whole lot. It's not even clear that it violates his rule of taxation of proportionality because – in terms of the guy's income, you know, you still might be taking, even though you're taking more for his passage, you still might be taking just, you know, 1%. Yeah, yeah, same percentage. Um, so th there, are, there are tidbits that some of the left readers of Smith, Smith make a big deal of, and some of them I do think, you know, have significance. Um, uh, and that one is one of them that they play up. I don't think it has that much significance. Um, but on the whole, I, I don't think we should read Smith in a left sort of way really much at all. So we're kind of out of time here. Part, part of the goal 
of this podcast was to give an interested reader a little bit of the flavor of the theory of moral sentiments. Part of it was to establish some concepts and uh, vocabulary for our ongoing reading, which will uh, commence imminently for those who are going to be reading along with us. Do you want to say anything else uh, about the book or about uh, the topics we've been talking about in closing? Um, well, just that today we hit on some of the stuff which I think is often neglected in people's reading and understanding. Um, so I wanted to bring out some of the things which I have found to be quite important in my thinking about it, like the four sources, the distinction between precise rules and loose, vague, and indeterminate rules, the different notions of justice that are actually going on. But um, like the idea of the impartial spectator, I don't think we've even mentioned today. Yeah. And that's quite central. Um, that's a hard thing, though, to just spit out, like in an introductory podcast, because I think that... that Smith talks a lot about when you're acting, what an impartial spectator would think of your actions and how that affects your perception of whether you're doing right or wrong. Right. And in some contexts, he's actually meaning like some other guy who happens to be around and spectating and doesn't have an interest in either side of, let's say, a bilateral interaction, and in that sense is impartial. And so it's just like and a, nor it's like a, a no normal impartial guy who's a spectating. And a spectator, yeah. Right. But... Other times but, he means your conscience and thing, or something that yes, how you might perceive your that's conscience. That's right. Or, he takes that idea of the guy in that kind of concrete physical guy context and then um, basically turns that into a very elaborate allegory, I would say, about how we then develop the notion of such a spectator in our minds who is kind of privy to all the you know, personal knowledge that we have of our own experiences, and we kind of um, start to conjure up what such a spectator would think uh, and, uh, and how they would evaluate or assess what they see us doing, because we start to have almost a relationship with this um, this kind of internal spectator. And whether there's just our own internal spectators or whether there's actually a god uh, or whether maybe even it's just that it's useful for us to think that there's a common singular god for all of us um, become, I think, issues that, again, I think remain quite mysterious but important. And we'll touch on those as we read through the, through the book from the beginning. Um, the plan for those who want to read along on these Wednesday podcasts is uh, we're going to do, at least tentatively, this could always change, but we're going to do four more of these Wednesdays where we read through the – the book has seven parts, but we might not get to part seven. The Part seven is a overview of other uh, systems of justice and moral philosophy, and we've touched on some of the high points of part seven, but we'll certainly read and discuss parts one through six. So for April 15th, if you want to follow along – uh, you can read uh, part one, and uh, we'll continue on from there, and we'll see how it goes. Any closing remarks, Dan? No, just I'm really looking forward to it. I'm really grateful to, for the opportunity. And thank you for being uh, for being such a uh, a resource for us. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.